So we're going to get into the uh, teaching this morning. So I'm actually going to, we're going to read the entire chapter. So I realize for, for many of us, um, the, the practice of reading large portions of scripture uh, may be a little bit foreign just because, uh, you know, I realize our culture has the attention span of, uh, I don't know, a, a fruit fly. It's just really, really short attention span. We, we bounce around. Um, and I realize that this might be a little bit of a stretch, but um, so I, I want to, we're going to read through the entire chapter. It's like 37 passages. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to have like a team of readers who are going to come on up. So why don't you guys come on up right now and they'll be ready and I'm going to set the stage for them. Um, then they're going to read the passages that will also be up on the screen. So if you guys have your Bibles, why don't you open up to Daniel chapter 4. Um, if not, like I said, it'll be also be up on the screen. It will be kind of color-coordinated because there will be basically four or five main scenes that will be um, part of the whole chapter. And then what we'll do as far as teaching is we'll basically take a look at three of the main characters that are in chapter four. So today will be a little bit different than what we normally do on a, on a Sunday, um, but I don't think it'll be entirely different than what you're normally used to. But um, before we jump in and have these guys uh, read for us, so let's give these guys a nice round of applause. Thank you. They'll do well. Um, um, this, this story is a really, really unique chapter um, because it's actually written by a world militaristic uh, tyrant, uh, oppressor slash tyrant. And uh, that's really unique, obviously. It, it's, uh, imagine someone who uh, lived their entire life oppressing other people, and then they get a chapter in the entire Bible. Like, that's, that's what's happening here. Um, what's unique about it, though, is this guy who writes in this chapter um, has a profound transformation. Uh, he meets God and is radically transformed by God. And then his story gets retold in this uh, book called Daniel. And uh, so just with that in the back of your mind, um, again, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. I'll show you a little side real quick, and then we'll just jump into the text. Um, if you're familiar with the guy named Nebuchadnezzar, he's the guy who's going to be authoring this chapter or telling the story of his own life. Uh, he was the king over what's called the Neo-Babylonian Empire, um, ancient empire that was a, one of the largest, most profoundly impacting empires of the ancient known world. Uh, this picture is not like an actual photograph. It's an image of um, what's known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Maybe you're familiar with that. It's one of the ancient wonders, uh, the seven ancient wonders of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There you go. Um, and um, it, it, what's, what was absolutely amazing about this was imagine Iraq, which is where Babylon was, nothing but desert. Um, access to water was, was difficult, but being able to use water and create, you know, aqueducts to be able to not only harness uh, water, but also then to create this incredible spectacle, this garden, was, was what made this one of the wonders of the ancient world. And this was created by this author of this chapter. So there's kind of some interesting, unique realities about the chapter that you're going to read. Again, this is his, his testimony, his story of his life. So with that being said, let's go ahead and uh, jump right in, and these guys will read a little section of the text for you all. Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, 
that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height great. Its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, kept King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, Tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, this is the, this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You'll be given, you will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. 
Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. All the end, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not the great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, and you, and until you, the most high rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. And now the best part of the story. <laughs> At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the in inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of God. I want to pray, um, just... Prepare hearts, because we just read a large passage of Scripture that's really powerful. And let's just ask the Lord to meet us. God, right now we ask you that you would let your word uh, dig deep down into those reservoirs in our hearts that need to be touched and transformed and, in some cases, removed. And we pray, Lord, that this morning you would help us to see that you and you alone are king over all things, and that your kingdom is a good kingdom. We don't need to feel threatened by it because really the only things we have to lose are those things that are destructive to us and ultimately destructive to others. Uh, you're a good father. You love us. So we just commit this morning in your hands and our time together and our observations. We pray that we 
ask that you would help us to better understand this passage, this text, your heart, and how we can be a part of what you're up to in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just want to look at basically three things which really have to do with the characters, the main characters of the story, which are obviously just these. Number one, we'll take a look at Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's pride in particular. We'll take a look at Daniel's prophetic words, because Daniel obviously speaks, and his words, as well as his life, are significant, I think are worth noting. And then thirdly, we'll take a look at God's power ultimately to humble, um, but then to lift up. So this is, this is kind of what God does on both of these levels. He humbles, raises, he, he, he causes people to be brought low, um, but then he also has this ability to elevate and raise people up. And uh, this is a theme that seems to be brought about uh, over and over again throughout this chapter is specifically within Nebuchadnezzar's life. So let's just jump in. We'll make some observations. We'll wrap it up with some response. So let's talk a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar's pride. So we see this basically take place um, in the beginning of the story where he makes this identification that he needed some lessons to be learned within life, obviously. Uh, what's fa- fascinating to me about Nebuchadnezzar is I had already alluded to that he was an incredibly gifted ruler as well as a builder. Um, oh, and by the way, this, this painting, if you're familiar with this, does anybody know what this painting is, by the way, just out of curiosity? Anybody? Anybody who, who did this? Any guesses? William Blake? Anybody know who William Blake is? 1800, somewhere. Anyway, sorry. He was a poet slash painter. So anyways, oh, one person. Okay, cool. Um, anyways, so this is a painting that he had, he had done. Um, he was a super gifted, intelligent guy, but also struggled a lot with, with darkness and depression, as oftentimes that can happen. And he, uh, in one of his dark states, actually painted what he perceived was a picture of Nebuchadnezzar. If you look carefully at it, you see his, his hair growing out. If you can, I don't know if you can see uh, as well the actual image of his feet, but his fingernails, toenails are long. Um, he looks beast-like. He looks Gollum-esque, right, uh, to use an L-O-T-R phrase, right? If you don't know what that means, then we still love you and we accept you in Jesus. But the point of the matter is, is this, this is an idea of who Nebuchadnezzar is, that he is literally a guy who is, who's a slave to, his, to himself, to his, his ways, his pride. Um, but what's interesting in terms of a, I don't know, a paradox about Nebuchadnezzar is on the one hand, he's incredibly great. He's a great builder. He's a great uh, leader. I mean, in terms of at least being able to organize and uh, establish his own decree. But at the same time, he's deeply flawed, uh, which means he uses people, right? He uh, makes them pay for his own being propped up. In other words, don't judge him too much because all of us suffer to some degree of this exact same complex that Nebuchadnezzar suffered with. Uh, someone described it this way, that he had suffered from cosmic plagiarism. I like that, that phrase, cosmic plagiarism. So obviously in our world today, we know what plagiarism is. It's when you take something uh, that belongs to somebody else, uh, the rights or the property of somebody else, and then you claim it as your own. You say, this is, this is my song, right? I wrote this song, or this is my beat. Like Katy Perry just got busted for this recently. Did you guys see that news thing? So anyways, uh, or, or you write a book, and you take, you lift an entire chapter of that book from another like ancient obscure author or whatever, and some, then you get caught because you know, we live in the age of information, and, and it's easy to catch people on these types of ways. And uh, it's called plagiarism, and, and our our culture more and more is recognizing, like, this is not cool. Like, it's totally not cool to do that. There's lawsuits with regard to that. But the fact of the matter is, we do that on a cosmic level. And what I, what I mean by that is we're all created by God, 
whether you know that or not, whether you recognize that or not, whether you acknowledge that or not, whether or not you submit to that or not, all of us bear God's image. That's the story of Scripture. And yet what ends up happening, all of us, we have certain degrees of giftings, of abilities, of strengths, of things that are unique to us. But what ends up happening oftentimes is we take those unique abilities and giftings and, you know, whatever it might be. You might be, you might be someone that's like extremely good looking, right? You did not make yourself good looking. You were born like that. We don't like you, but the fact of the matter is we will accept you. I'm just kidding. But the point, there's all these giftings that we have. So you might be a good writer. You might be a good surfer, a good, you know, skateboarder. might be a good athlete. You might have a very highly technical mind that allows you to do calculations and stuff like that. Um, all of these things, just you were, you're born with these. God gave them to you. You may have honed them. You may have uh, educated yourself in some of these areas to fine-tune those resources and skills. But the fact of the matter is, is that all of these were gifts from your creator God. Just like Nebuchadnezzar had this ability to build and create and to organize. And he did so by way of building and establishing this vast empire. And yet, again, like with any empire, it's built upon the backs of slaves. Uh, he oppressed people. He was, an, he was an evil guy, uh, just like you and I have these propensity, propensities and uh, tendencies to become just like Nebuchadnezzar. But the point that I would make is this, is that he lived in this world by which he was leveraging or lifting all the giftings and talents that God had given them and acting as if they are his own. They're his own uh, right and own property, and he can benefit from them at the expense of other people and just somehow live and create a world that is sustainable like that. But in the long run, it will come crashing down. This is, this is Nebuchadnezzar's story of it, it all coming crashing down. And yet in the midst of this, God meeting him right in the middle of that chaos. And this is the beautiful story of, of his transformation, of him coming to meet face-to-face this God who loves him in spite of the fact of his horrible lifestyle and the way that he mistreated people. So... On the one hand, he's incredibly gifted, but he's also, as some others would even describe it, he's a glory thief. Just like you and I are glory thieves. We steal the glory from God and call it our own. And the fact of the matter is, is this was the day in the story of Nebuchadnezzar's coming to meet this God and having all of his world come undone and having it then put right back together again. Um, pride. There's a couple of things I think about with regard to pride. Pride is sort of the, the main element that is at play here within the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. It's the main element that kind of gets put on display. Um, it's the main element that really, for the most part, every one of us we struggle with, we deal with. Um, I was thinking about this, that there's at least four ways to identify pride or what pride oftentimes leads to in our lives. Uh, first of all, we see that pride can oftentimes lead to a degree of entitlement where you feel the sense, or maybe if you're trying to figure out, I'm not really sure if I have pride, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain that you do. Um, and it's, uh, C.S. Lewis even writes about this. He, I, I can't, I don't have this particular quote. I will actually come to this one in a second. Um, but he has this quote where he says, look, I have this unique ability to identify pride in others really, really well. And he says, it's probably because, you know, for the most part, I've been trained to observe it so well within my own self. Like, I, 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 I move in pride, and therefore I'm able to identify pride in others really well. So have you noticed that, how it's easy for us to identify prideful people really, really significantly and quickly? Like, you can see someone and be like, they're so prideful. Like, how, how is it that you're able to identify it so quickly? Because that's, that's you. We're all, we're all there. Like, we're all infected by the same, the same disease, right? So I think, first of all, it leads to this degree of entitlement of, like, I deserve this. 
I, I expect this to be coming to me because um, really at the end of the day, it's this, this self-focused pridefulness. Um, we've all had those moments where, you know, you have a, a long week or a long day and you come home and you're like, all I want to do is just have the couch to myself. I deserve it or eat like what I did a couple nights ago. I had a long week, a long day, and I'm like, all I want is ice cream. That's it. And I got Ben and Jerry's ice cream, which I normally never eat. And I ate, I can't even, I'm not really sure how it happened. I ate the whole thing. And I'm like, I don't know how that happened. But it sure felt really good, and I deserved it. And so it's that reality that oftentimes we have those mentalities that kind of motivate and move us. And it's, it's that feeling of entitlement. But at the center of it really is this, this notion of pride. Um, I'm at the center of my universe. I deserve whatever uh, I have coming to me that's at least rewarding or good for me. Uh, secondly, I see that pride oftentimes drains empathy, uh, removes any capacity to be able to feel uh, for other people. Uh, because pride is like a black hole. It just absorbs itself. It's the opposite of love, by the way, which, which love is like a garden. Love is life-giving. And this is why you can be around people that are self-focused and self-centered. And at the end of the day, they uh, do not, um, they don't get along well with anybody because everything is just kind of tuned in on them. It's bent towards them. The stories that somehow inevitably get woven into the dialogue is always about them, right? Have you ever been around that, that person? Um, that's, that's what pride does. It, it, it removes the ability to actually feel empathy towards somebody else, compassion, love, kindness, or being unable to hurt where other people are, are hurting. Um, pride also leads to a sense where you always feel threatened. It's kind of third thing. You always feel threatened because if at the end of the day what pride is is I'm the center of my universe, and everything belongs to me, or I'm deserving of everything, that if, if I am not being acknowledged or recognized, or somebody else comes in and steals the spotlight from me, I get frustrated, I get hurt, or I feel like I have to fight to maintain a position in that spotlight. And that's what oftentimes it does as well. I always feel threatened. Uh, fourthly, I see it also just leads to a degree of fullness of ingratitude, um, not being able to be thankful. Um, you want to pull the thread to unravel the entire like um, linen of pride is start with gratitude. Start with developing, cultivating a heart that learns to be full of thankfulness for God and for what God has done in your life. Learn to just pause and think about what are the good things that happen in your life, that are happening in your life. Uh, we have a, um, a practice that we do here at our church within our leadership is we call it um, the identifying evidences of grace, like asking the bigger question, what is God doing in our midst? So one of the things that if you ever find yourself in the midst of a church or a community or a small group and you find yourself uh, becoming full of ingratitude and unthankfulness and complaining about anything and everything under the sun, um, just pause, step back, and enter into a new practice of asking what are the things that are good here? What are the good things that are taking place here? What are the things that I can rejoice that are evidences of God's uh, spirit at work and moving in these particular areas or this person's life? I mean, honestly, it could actually do wonders even for marriages. That if there is a marriage, a married couple, that to some degree they have just gotten to a place. One of the things, I mean, I'm going on 29 years of marriage. And uh, one of the things I've, I've identified just even within me at play within me is sort of this, this negative glasses half full mentality where I can constantly just be looking at all the things that are wrong. I'm an eight on the Enneagram, so I'm just kind of wired that way. And it's just, you know, I, I'm easy to just identify those things that are not going well. 
and complain about those things or at least allow my heart to just settle on those things. And then it just sets a tone for everything around me. But one of the things I've, I've, I've found myself is asking the bigger question, how can I just step back and look at the really good things that God has blessed me with with, with my wife and, and, and pause and reflect upon how incredible Sherry is and how patient she has been with me and how generous and kind and all these other things. And what it does by way of a practice, it begins to change our posture. Um, because again, the flip side is, is pride. Pride just has this tendency, again, to exacerbate um, entitlement, drain empathy, cause us to always feel threatened, and then ultimately lead to this constant uh, cul-de-sac of, of ingratitude, never being able to be thankful. So we see with regard to number one, Nebuchadnezzar had this degree of pride that then God begins to move within his life. Secondly, I want to take a look at a little bit about Daniel and these prophetic words of Daniel. So with regard to Daniel, what's kind of interesting to me about him is at least three things. Number one, as I notice his, his life. I mean, he's, he's lived this long obedience, to borrow a phrase from um, Eugene Peterson, long obedience in the same direction, that Daniel is probably, I don't know, middle-aged, maybe older. Now, we're not really exactly certain how old Daniel is, maybe at least 15 to 20 years since he's been in um, Babylon. So again, if you remember the story, Daniel's entire homeland was, uh, was destroyed. It's kind of like uh, their experience of a 9-11, but it would be like 9-11 plus a deportation plus an, erase, uh, an, erase, an erasing of your entire cultural um, history or background or identity. Um, this is the type of stuff that Daniel had actually gone through. And so what we see with regard to Daniel is that he had developed this habit, this life of learning what to say yes to and learning what to say no to. And this is what's interesting to me, even about Daniel's uh, mention in the chapter, is that Nebuchadnezzar, when he talks about Daniel, um, because Nebuchadnezzar describes himself having this dream, as we had read, and he does what he had done before in the past, where he's got this payroll of people that are working for him that uh, are just their main goal is like, you know, dream interpretation. So he's got a bad dream, which oftentimes in the ancient culture, paganism could mean like a bad omen. We need to have somebody come in who's a specialist, professional in this area, and tell us what the dream is, right? Uh, again, like has happened before, no one really knows how to interpret the king's dream. It's about a tree growing large and birds and everything kind of coming underneath it, um, which is an interesting kind of wink back to Genesis chapter 1, which those that were created in the image of God bear God's image. Um, they are to have dominion over all the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and so on and so forth. And this is to, to some degree of what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar. So he calls Daniel in, and Daniel has this unique ability to interpret the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, but the way that Nebuchadnezzar describes Daniel, he says, in Belshazzar, and it's an interesting way for him to actually identify Daniel, even in this chapter. He, and he even goes on to say, oh, I named him that after my God. It's like as if he's looking back and saying, this is how filled up with not only myself that I was, but also in terms of the stories and the myths of ancient paganism that was innate within Babylonian culture as well. But what he points out is that Daniel did not seem to object about even being called by the name of a false god. So again, raises really interesting question. Daniel knew how to navigate these, this cultural like knife edge, what to say yes to, what to say no to. 
So Daniel comes into Babylon, and they're basically like, Daniel, we want to erase your entire Jewish identity and give you a new Babylonian identity. And Daniel's like, okay, I'll say yes to you guys changing my name, whatever, that's fine. I'll say yes to learning Babylonian culture and Babylonian ideas and myths and all of these other, you know, creation stories that Daniel probably would have been uh, fluent within. Uh, but then there's other things that Daniel says, but this I will not do. I will not defile myself by eating the king's meat, which probably was like an unkosher type of a meal. But there were certain things that Daniel said yes to, and there's certain things that Daniel said no to. In order to be a good disciple, or disciple, I should say, faithful in our world, you have to know the difference. Do you know what things you should say yes to? Do you know what things you should say no to? Because I think I would go out on a limb and suggest that for many of us, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where a lot of us struggle, is we say yes to things that we should actually be saying no to. We say no to things that we actually should be saying yes to. And we live kind of in this cultural like confusion. We're not really sure what kingdom we belong to, where, where our loyalty should ultimately lay within either the culture of this world around us or the culture of heaven that's invading, in, in a good way, this earth in which we live in. But Daniel knew how to do this well. Secondly, I see with regard to Daniel is that he also has this like super humble posture. So verse 19, we're told that Daniel comes before the king and Daniel, when he's listening to the dream, uh, he realizes this is not good for the king. So again, just to remind you, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was a guy that does not, did not play games. All right, he was a guy that was ruthless. He, in an early chapter, actually said, look, anybody that does not do what I tell them to do, I will literally rip them limb from limb tear every limb off of their body and I will destroy their house. So he's a guy that you don't want to mess with. You don't want to like joke around with. You, know, you don't know what side of the bed he woke up on that morning, right? So Daniel is literally confronted with this reality of what do I say to the king because I know that the interpretation of his dream is actually not favorable towards him. You, you understand? So Daniel's facing this dilemma. Do I just tell the king what he wants to hear and then be unfaithful to God or do I be faithful to God and tell the king what he will definitely not want to hear and run the risk of maybe dying? Daniel chose that. He chose to be faithful to God. But he does so in a way that's incredibly humble. Did you, did you notice that? Did you catch that in the story? So Daniel comes before the king, just in case you missed it. He comes before the king and he basically says to the king, he says, look, king, um, I wouldn't even, I, I would wish this upon your enemies. Like, the interpretation of the dream. So the king's like, so what's going on here? Daniel's like, it's, it's bad, but I would prefer this to be upon your enemies. And then Daniel's like, uh, the king's asking him, so what exactly does that mean? And what is actually being implied here? Daniel says, okay, it's bad, so here's the deal. Uh, the tree king that you saw that gets cut down by way of the watchers, you know, which is kind of a strange language that doesn't actually appear in any other Old Testament book. It's probably language that's borrowed from um, that cultural idea. There's another book that's called the, uh, I'm giving you too much nerdy stuff, but um, the, the story of Enoch, which the phrase uh, watches is actually borrowed from or probably used from within there. Probably the indication is some sort of like a being that's divine or uh, like an angelic type of a being that has some degree of power over the heavens that makes decisions. And thus one of the decisions that was made was to cut Nebuchadnezzar down to size. And so Daniel has to tell the king this is what the dream is. Again, running the risk that he might himself be, be killed. But he does so in such a way that's so polite. And he's like, king, I would really rather not tell you this dream, but I need to be faithful to God. And here's what the dream is. But he does so in this posture 
that's humble, that's, that's kind, that's careful, that's caring. And, and I would suggest that for us to try to live within this cultural moment which we live in, um, I think Christians need to be really careful about our posture. And I would even go so far as to suggest that in, in, in many ways, uh, a lot of the cultural pushback that kind of a post-Christian culture is kind of bringing upon many of those who claim fidelity to Jesus today is directly connected to the fact that Christians can easily be jerks and not kind and not polite and not have a posture of humility and kindness and gentleness. But Daniel has and embodies all of this. So the third thing that I noticed with regard to Daniel is this ability to just have this sense of courage where he actually is able to speak truth to power. And here's what I mean by way of Daniel's propheticness. And what I mean by prophet or propheticness is not so much foretelling the future that Daniel is able to do some of that, but what I mean more so is a sense of being able to speak words that God puts upon your heart with a posture that's humble, but with a clarity that's faithful to truth. I think in our current cultural age, it's easy for us, it's, I would say maybe even it's easier for us to have a posture of humility and be calm and nice and kind, but not speak truth. Would you agree with that? Because we're afraid of what's going to happen. What would happen if I speak truth that seems to be clear within Scripture? It's going to offend people. It's going to make people mad. It's going to put me out of sorts and out of relationship, out of good light with other people. But at some point, you have to ask this bigger question. Who am I ultimately supposed to be loyal to, to the culture at large that's shaping, that's constantly shifting, that is one way today, but will be an entirely different way eight years from now. You know, this is always happening, right? Like, we can look back. It's, 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 it's crazy to me. You can look back at, you know, a, an audio tape that comes up from Ronald Reagan and be like, he's a racist now, too. But no one would have ever thought that back then. Why is that? I'm, again, I'm, just, I'm not making any political statement here. I'm just simply pointing out this is how culture works, that, Fast forward 50 years from now, we look back upon 2019. What are the things we're going to look back on 50 years from now on 2019 and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we thought that or said that or believed that or lived that or lobbied for that or protested that. The point that I'd make is this, is that culture is always changing, but the ways of God don't. So Daniel chose faithfulness to God, even though it wasn't popular in that moment at all. But listen to what he goes on to say as he comes to the king. He says, you king, you're the tree. That's you. You will be cut down. I mean, imagine just receiving those words. You're the king. You're looking at your vast kingdom. You are on top of the food chain, right? There's nobody who tells you what to do. You are the, literally the law of the land. You have power over Everything. Everything. Right? That's stuff that we dream about most of the time, right? It's like, oh my gosh, if I had unlimited power and unlimited resources, unlimited anything and everything that I want. Well, that, that was Nebuchadnezzar, right? The author of this whole chapter right here. Um, Daniel comes to him and says, you're, that's you. You're going to be cut down. It's all going to be over for you. So get ready. But then he goes on to say, again, listen to how he states this in verse 27. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. So think about this. Your world, militaristic, superpower, tyrant, how do you build your empire? You build your empire by slave labor. Cheap labor, right? You, you want to build this vast kingdom, you need cheap labor, right? 
um, you do so by way of oppressing other people. Uh, there's a word for that in the Bible. It's called injustice. You treat people with this degree of despite and frustration, and you treat them as if they are they're animals. This is the strange poetic justice or irony of this chapter, is that the very king who bears the image of God, who has incredible creative powers, uses his, or misuses his power to abuse people, treat them as animals, and he himself ends up acting like an animal. But what's amazing to me about Daniel's boldness is he speaks this truth to him. He's like, look, king, you who have built your empire by way of idolatry and injustice, change that. Stop being idolatrous. Give your attention, your devotion to Yahweh, the one true God who rules all things, heaven and earth. And stop living in injustice and treat people right. Treat them with dignity and value and respect and set that as a precedent throughout your kingdom. Which, obviously, within the king's story, which we read, there comes a moment where he's looking out over his vast kingdom and he, about a year from this particular point, and he realizes, like, this is not this Babylon, my great kingdom, which I have built and I have created. And all of a sudden, one of the voices of the watchers comes down and says, like, so it's all over now, dude. Like, everything that you have built, everything that you have put your hand and your attention upon and affection to, it's going to be stripped from you for seven seasons. And there's all the speculation as to what a season is. Is it a reference to seven years, seven seasons, seventh month, seven months? There's all the speculation. I don't really know exactly. But the point of the matter is it was a, it was a seven fold period of time that the kingdom was taken away from the king and he then goes out in the field in that beast beast mode like beast mode which this what's fascinating about this whole reality is this actually begins to set a little bit of a precedent for other chapters to come because what we're going to begin to discover is that human beings were created in genesis chapter one and two uh, to bear god's image which means that they were called by God to be rulers over planet Earth, which includes birds of the air, which includes animals, and so on and so forth. But what happens when human beings, rather than living in accordance to God's wisdom, they take matters in their own hands, they live according to their own idea, their own perception of what wisdom is, and rather than looking to the ways of God, they begin to look to the ways of their own heart. So we say stuff like this in our modern world. We're like, I'm just being honest with myself. I'm just living in accordance with my truest self. But, but the problem with that is, really, what is your truest self? Do you even know what your truest self is? Is your quote-unquote truest self gonna, today going to be the same quote-unquote truest self five years from now? But the point that I'd make is that we, we live with this mindset, and when we end up living with another GPS system that's broken, by the way, and or the batteries are dead, or it's out of kilter, and we live according to that GPS system as opposed to the GPS system that's described as God's wisdom, what ends up happening is that we don't become more human-like, we actually become more beast-like. We take upon the shape of beast mode. We become unbearable. We become these type of people that are filled with rage and anger and disdain and racism and frustration there's all these other people that aren't like us. They don't fit our bill, our understanding. We begin to use other people for what they offer to us so that we can build our Babylons. You understand? This is a ubiquitous problem we all face. 
So what we see as we move into the very last thing is that God's power to both humble and lift up, and I'll wrap it up with his final thoughts. Um, so the central message of this entire chapter, I think, can be summarized like this, that the Most High God rules both heaven and earth. I think that's the main theological understanding or God-focused story or concept or idea that's trying to be communicated throughout this passage, or this entire chapter. Here's why. Um, Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, this is exactly what the king says, that this is the lesson I need to learn. That gets reiterated be, be, uh, down a little bit, down to verse 32. He says this, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, you're, you're going to be in beast mode, right? Um, until you know, until you learn this lesson. So the lesson is that Yahweh rules the kingdom of, of men. And I'm, I'm going to make a comment about that in just a second. But then finally go down to chapter uh, 4, verses 34 and 35 and 37, and basically all summarizes the same type of thing, that God rules both heaven and earth. So I want to pause real quick and just uh, make uh, a final statement, just considering this whole reality. So if you were to go to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and be like, hey, Yahweh rules heaven, I think King Nebuchadnezzar would be like, I don't have a problem with that. That's all cool. That's totally fine if he rules up there. But then you're pressed and be like, well, who rules down here? King Nebuchadnezzar would be like, well, that's easy. That's me. I rule earth. This, this is the issue all of us have to face. We're totally fine with this concept that God rules up there, out there, beyond there. But when we begin to ask the question, who actually rules my zone, my world, my day-to-day affairs, my desires that oftentimes betray me or lure me or cause me to make decisions to spend money or to act in certain ways that are destructive to other people, what ultimately controls my world in this zone we call terra firma? What is the God that rules that? And this was the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn because he was under the deception that he ruled planet Earth. Just like you and I oftentimes live within that delusion that we rule our own lives. We don't rule our own lives. We can ruin our own lives by our choices, by our decisions, by allowing our desires to be the very thing that lures us out or betrays us or deceives us, and we follow these things to their fullest end. Uh, The fact of the matter is most of us do not have the means to follow our desires to the fullest end, meaning we're not filthy rich like King Nebuchadnezzar or a rock star, right? But if we did, then we begin to discover pretty quickly. It's one of the reasons why some of those that have had the most amount of money on planet Earth, right, their story is oftentimes the same, like, they ask the question oftentimes get asked, like, what, how much more do you need to be satisfied? And the answer is oftentimes the same, like, just a little bit more, just another gold medal, just another, you know, million records sold, and just another, you know, award, or just another acknowledgement, just another accolade. And we lose sight of the fact that God's aim is actually to bring his kingdom onto this earth like Jesus said, as it is in heaven. C.S. Lewis uh, summarized it well, as he oftentimes does, this little statement. I'll read this and wrap it up. There's a couple misspellings in here, so I didn't do this. I just cut and pasted from Goodreads, so don't judge me. Anyways, here we go. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death death of your strongest ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body and in the end submit with every fiber of your being 
and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Live for yourself, and you will find that in the long run, only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else is thrown in. One of the biggest deceptions that we oftentimes can believe is that if I give my life to Jesus entirely or submit my ways to his, I will lose my life. I will lose my identity. Something will be lost. And the fact of the matter is, is yes, I want to just affirm that, yes, something will be lost. A tumor. A cancer. Something that will lead to death. Something that consistently fuels the racism inside you. That will be lost. It will be overcome by the power of Christ. But in the end, what ends up beginning to take a new shape is your truest self, your truest identity begins to come alive. And this is the reason why the good news is really good news. Because we have a God that even though he is literally the king of all heaven and all earth, what does he do? He disempowers himself for us human beings who refuse to lose power and to allow himself in a disempowered state to go to the place of the cross to bear the consequences of brokenness, of destruction, of chaos, to allow that to do to him what it's constantly doing to us, which we constantly live in denial of, and then allow it to do to him what it always does to us in the end, which is take us to the grave. Jesus dies, but on the third day we know he rises again from the dead because that's where the story is. And then Paul would write about this later. He said, all who are in Christ who have died in Christ, with Christ, will be raised with Christ. In other words, where Jesus went and where Jesus goes will be the state and the future of all those who follow him. So as we die to those things that are Nebuchadnezzar-esque within our lives, Gollum-like in our lives, so we will also rise in a new life that looks like Jesus, alive, loving instead of hating, being kind instead of people that are constantly trying to build our own kingdom at the expense of other people. Jesus has the ability to change our hearts. The big issue that Nebuchadnezzar learned was the issue that King Solomon wrote about in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'll finish with this little statement. I'm done. He says this in closing in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's the story of just the, the, what he uses the word constantly, the word vanity. Vanity, vanity is all vanity. And it doesn't necessarily mean, like, meaningless. It just means vapor-like. It's vapor-like. Everything in this world is vapor-like. You try to hold on to it, and it's gone. It's it's evasive. But he basically summarizes the entire book of Ecclesiastes with these words. He says, the conclusion of the entire matter is fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of humanity. This is what we're invited to look at. It's really the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar. It's the lesson that Jesus invites us to take a look at, to consider. Because look, the alternative, the alternative, here's the alternative, is the kingdom you're building for yourself. That's, that's the alternative. Or, or the, the kingdom that somebody else is building for you, which is just as dysfunctional and broken and has an expiration date in fine print. The kingdom Jesus offers is one that's eternal. It's one that death cannot overcome it. Why? Because it already had overcome it. But Jesus overcame death. 
And this is a story that we're invited into. So as we close, I'm going to have the worship team come on up. We're going to go to the table to eat the communion and be reminded of the fact of the meal that we've been invited to partake of, the bread that represents Jesus' body, the cup that represents his blood that was poured out, that Jesus would eventually say that this is part of the new covenant that you're being invited into, uh, a covenant. Um, I don't know what you think about the word covenant. It's a word that obviously we don't use very often, but it's a word in which God says, I want to covenant myself to you. I want to bind myself to you. The binding that God brings of himself to us is actually, though it might sound destructive of any freedom, is actually the most freeing thing that could ever happen to your life. It's the very thing that will free you from the consequences of your guilt, your shame, your sin, your brokenness, your defilement. And it's the very thing that will give you ultimate life. My invitation to us as we respond is to consider what God is inviting us to by way of responding to him.